0: Welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight and our guest today is Bruce Lipton PhD. Bruce is a pioneer in the new biology and an internationally recognized leader in bridging science and spirit. He's a cell biologist by training and he was on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and later performed groundbreaking stem cell research at Stanford University. He's the best selling author of The Biology of Belief and the more recent Spontaneous Evolution, co authored with Steve Behrman. Bruce received the 2009 prestigious Goy Prize Peace Award from Japan in honor of his scientific contribution to world harmony. And in 2012, he was chosen as Peace Ambassador for the Thousand Peace Flags Project of the Argentinian. Mil Milenios de Paz. Bruce, I'm so delighted to have you with us today. Welcome.
1: Miriam, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here because um, we haven't talked for a long, long time, and there's so much uh, wonderful new information to talk about.
0: Absolutely. Actually, your your biology of belief was such a groundbreaking, really seminal book um, in in the new science movement, the new biology movement, and now I, I see that you're you're trying to do for relationships, what you did for understanding of the the mechanisms of how our cells react to our environment. So tell me, um, why did you decide actually to apply the, these principles of as above so below, or in this case as below so above, <laughs> to relationships?
1: Well, uh, basically, uh, my own personal history of relationships was uh, not a very exciting one or one that I would even want to talk about. Matter of fact, I never really even believed in love in the in the form that people talk uh, about that so-called romantic love. Because for me, it was, oh, that's a movie or... A book story thing, but I, I, I never saw it in real life. And when I started to understand the nature of the biology of belief and the programming, I realized yes, I was pretty successful in my scientific career because in my developmental programming at home, education was totally encouraged in any form. But uh, modeling relationships uh, by uh, observing my parents uh, proved not to be that functional. Um, We would then say dysfunctional in this case. And uh, and when you understand the nature of biology uh, belief that our programming during the first seven years actually controls our lives, I realized that uh, I was playing out the same kind of programs that uh, my parents were engaged in. And obviously I had no success either with that. And then there was a wake up call that said, "But you can change all that that was biology of belief 's final message that we 're not stuck with anything. We can change the program. I changed the program. It was kind of interesting because uh, I needed a little help and I was um, uh, down in the Caribbean. Uh, I, I had this great life for a while. It was great. I was teaching uh, in the Caribbean uh, at medical schools and it gave me an opportunity. I had a villa and I had a beach at my own house and a pool and a gardener and a cook and all these things because uh, it was the Caribbean. It was a lot less expensive, but I was a resident there. and. I kept looking for a partner and I've been doing that for years and years and years, somebody to, to be there. And, uh, you know, and I kept looking for love and, uh, I, and I always had that great line that I thought, you know, geez, this is a, re- a really good, you know, pickup line, you know, like, well, if you're not doing anything, you want to come and spend some time in my villa in the mm-hmm. Caribbean. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I tried it a lot and never really was successful with it. And, um, I, a particular, uh, time I was, uh, uh uh, down at uh, what was called the Yacht Club and some people uh, had come in and this woman had come in who was just uh, uh, just sailing with people on yachts and, and I thought, okay, uh, after talking with her, I thought, oh, maybe I tried this line on her. So I tried the line and then she looked at me straight in the face and said, you know, I, I can't be with you. You're, you're too needy. And 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 all of a sudden it was like, you know, slap in my face, big one, you know. But it was so cool because my consciousness caught up really quickly before I said anything. And I realized how important that message was. And I actually said, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Because I had to stop and realize. I said, look, I have this great job have this great house, I live in a perfect environment, I work so little, make enough money. If I can't be happy where I am at by myself, then there's really something wrong with me. And that was the first time I said, look, how can how can you know, you're looking for happiness by trying to find it from somebody else, that's a, a terrible burden uh, uh, for both people because it really represents a codependent relationship, saying, geez, I'm not happy without a partner, so I need a partner who's going to provide that. Uh, and in my biology of belief, clarity and logic it said, wait a minute, if you can't be happy on your own, then this is never going to work. And I just had to pause long enough to look at my life and say, God, I am so lucky. And I started to um, just enjoy my life more without that urgent need that I was looking for to fill a space. And, And the most exciting thing happened was... Once I started to become so happy with where I was in my life and everything was just so beautiful and perfect, it was surprising that then all of a sudden these potential partners showed up from all over the place, you know, and I realized uh, once I was in a, in a ready state, then I was ready for a relationship. And the, the book, uh, The Honeymoon Effect, the new book, uh, is really based on a scientific experiment because, A, I never believed in this kind of romance stuff. I uh, changed my programming. I uh, now am 17-plus years uh, in a honeymoon relationship with my partner, Margaret. And for me, this is like this ongoing experiment. I don't know how long it's going to go for. Uh, you know, it could. I, I anticipate forever. Uh, and and the thing that's really exciting about it is it wasn't done just like, hey, what a coincidence! I found a partner. But it was done with an understanding of why we seek relationships, the mechanisms that that uh, bring us into relationships and most importantly uh the mechanism that inevitably causes almost all honeymoon experiences to to you know fade away and become like regular life and the juiciness and the magic and the the wonder that you experience in the honeymoon becomes sort of like everyday life and I, and and there's a reason why we lose it so i got all excited because when you understand why you created how you created and why you lost the honeymoon Guess what? You are free to create a honeymoon that will be yours every day of your life for the rest of your life.
0: Here, here. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of did forget to mention that we are talking about your book, The Honeymoon Effect, which has just come out. Um, you talk about the reaction of this woman in the Caribbean who... Yes. Um, was responding to something that you were emanating and you you, you talk about this in the book the vibes let's yes. go into the vibes how do we how do we radiate vibes
1: well let's first of all let's just bring it up into context of most people have experienced something that we would label as good, good vibes and bad vibes and, and we say that, and it's like that, oh, I, I feel really good, or I feel really bad. And it's like, well, you know, this is not, not just a, a, a thought. This is actually a biological reality. Uh, and for a very simple reason is this. All organisms, including humans, the primary means of communication is through vibration. This is an understanding that is offered through quantum mechanics and the nature of the energy and the invisible so-called field of energy around us. Organisms respond to fields, and uh, fields uh, determine uh, an organism's position in regard to uh, its survivability. Uh, Basically saying this, you know, I could go back to the most simple organism like a cells in my petri dish I put a cell in a petri dish I put nutrients in front of the cell and then put the petri dish back in the incubator when I come back later Of course the cell is moved toward and into the nutrients and I say in in another dish I, I, I put a cell in there, but I put toxins in front of the cell And when I put it back in the incubator for a while and then take it back out, where's the cell? It's in the complete opposite side of the petri plate from the toxins. The question is this. It's like, okay, who's teaching or where's the consciousness of a cell to say go to the food and go away from the toxin? At this primitive level, it's not a thinking kind of process that we're into. It's actually energy. And energy is very important because people talk about energy. Energy is power. And it's basically life is directly related to energy. When you have lots of energy, you have lots of life. And when you run out of energy, life uh, closes down. In fact, uh, without energy, you die. So our viability, our life, our experiences are a measure of energy. Well, in, in my lectures, what I talk about is energies and vibrations like ripples on a pond and when two sets of ripples come and meet each other, so one is moving uh, toward the other and the two rep- ripples uh, converge, um, they interact with each other. And the two, two uh, polar extremes of the interaction is sometimes when two ripples come together and they're in harmony, the energy is amplified. And and so when when two objects uh, sharing the same harmonic energy come together, there's a a field of energy that changes. And in humans, you can feel energized when you're in the right place with the right people. Uh, sort of, I, I mentioned a lecture like on Friday night, you're dead tired and you don't want to go to the party that you said you'd go to, but they convince you. You drag yourself to the party. And you start to meet these people. Next thing you know, you're dancing and having a great time. And it's like, well, where did all that energy come from? You, you drag yourself to the party. What happens is when you start to surround yourself with energy that's in harmony with you, because you're an energy being, uh, and if the energy is in harmony with you, it adds up in uh, technical name, constructive interference, typical name, good vibes. That meant, oh, my gosh, I, I really feel good here. I'm getting a lot of energy. Uh, in contrast, uh, perhaps you've... Uh, walk down some dark street in some place you're not very familiar with, and as you walk down the street, you can feel the energy drain out of your body. Uh, We refer to that as bad vibes. It means that there's a loss of energy, and this happens when, if there's an energy that is out of phase with you, not in harmony with you, and, you, and, and there are two ripples coming together, and one set of ripples is you, and the other set is out of harmony. When they come together, there's an interference, but it's not constructive, it's called destructive. The energy flatlines. And you say, well, why is this important? Because the answer is this, cells live uh, based on their energy. When they have energy, they're empowered, and when they lose energy, they, they start to die. So what does a cell do? it reads the energy of everything in the field, moves toward things where the energy enhances the vitality of the cell, and moves away from anything that threatens it. That's the first fundamental understanding of how life is, is organized. I mean, it's like nature doesn't have a, a school for amoebas to say, look, this is a good <laughs> thing, go to it, and this is bad. Uh, how do you do it? It's, an, uh, it's just a built-in reading of the energy. Humans have this. And as I said, we we usually feel the extremes, the good vibes and the bad vibes, although there's a complete range of vibes in between. Mm -hmm. And yet, we've been programmed mainly as children to ignore our feelings and listen to what people say. Uh, And and this is quite unfortunate because the truest of all communication, because it's the communication of every organism on this planet, is the vibration. Mm -hmm. So. When you're near the people that are in harmony with you, you feel excited, you feel energized. You are actually drawn to them as much as a cell is drawn to nutrition. Uh, And the reason why, your energy is enhanced. Uh, And you say, well, why should my energy be enhanced when I'm around a a, a potential mate? So we have to back up one step, Mm -hmm. Miriam. And it goes like this. There's a built-in... Uh, biological behavior built into every organism on this planet. Science can give it a name. It's called the biological imperative. And while we can give it a name and define it, we don't know exactly where it is. And what the biological imperative is, is the drive to survive. Meaning, you, you take a bacterium, and if you try and kill it, the bacterium isn't just going to sit there and go, oh, okay, go ahead, kill me. The bacterium will try every maneuver to stay alive. So there's, a, there's something built into an organism that if it sees its life is threatened, it's built in behavior to stay alive. Well, the biological imperative applies to the individual, but it also applies to the species, when we talk about the biological, the imperative of the individual, Miriam, we're, we're saying, look, we all have a drive for food, <clears throat> and we have a drive for water, uh, air. So if you're, these are things that are necessary for life. If you, if you're hungry, you will, your behavior will be focused totally on getting food to keep you alive. So that's the individual survival. But then there's species survival. But that automatically entails reproduction. So we say, okay. Nature has to bring two species together to reproduce. The basic level is estrogen and testosterone. So that in the male, the testosterone activates the male to reproduce as the estrogen activates the female. And both of these are, are really environmentally controlled, especially in lower organisms. So let's say two frogs. They, they come together, the environment's just right, the female ovulates the eggs, the male in response to the eggs uh, uh, releases sperm on top of the eggs. And that's reproduction. And the two frogs don't have to court each other. You know that, that old song, Froggy, when a courting? Uh, <laughs> that's not really necessary. Frogs just have the right estrogen, testosterone, boom. They're just reflexively reproducing. The interesting thing about it is this. Lower organisms on the scale, like a frog, when they mate, the fertilized eggs are on their own. The the frogs don't stay around and and try to be good conscious parents or anything. They they just mate, gone, uh, look for more mating or whatever. But the idea is parenting is not necessary because the individual, when born, is self-sufficient. As you go up the evolutionary scale, uh, you start to find that uh, more complex organisms when they're born are not really completely developed yet. And as you get to the level of humans, it says how long does it take for an individual human child to grow to self-sufficiency, it's like maybe 13 years. And all of a sudden you realize, well, what is nature going to have to do? In the frog, nature just says, you two come together, fertilize the eggs, you can go wherever you want. But when a human comes together, nature says, look, I need to keep two humans around for 13 years uh, as parents. And and so I say, well, how does nature encourage behavior? And the answer is uh, good vibes, bad vibes. (laughs) And it says basically this at the higher level good vibes are also pleasure and bad vibes are pain and so nature gives us pleasure when we're moving in the right direction to support the biological imperative and in any time we take a uh, you know a turn and and uh, move away from survival uh, it inevitably costs us uh, some uh, pain in some mm-hmm. process saying you're going the wrong way so number 1 we're all driven to be in a coupling situation. That's just part of the nature. Why? That's the biological imperative to make sure the species goes on. But we're also driven to stay with a partner as humans for a long period of time, which means then nature says, well, I must provide them with pleasure. Otherwise, why would they stay together? <laughs> so all of a sudden you start to realize... We have an inherent innate drive, and this is very critical, Miriam. Uh, it's not at the conscious level, it's below conscious level. It's not your thinking, you're driven by the chemistry and the field and the environment to, to, to do this biological imperative thing of reproduction, which means you are looking for a partner. And the significance about that is how do we know when we're you know, uh, approaching said partner that's gonna be right? Well, number one is you start to feel the good vibes because the vibes tell you that this potential person is in harmony with you or not in harmony based on good or bad vibes. And, and so we're drawn to them. But then nature says this, um, not only are you drawn to them for reproduction, but I want to keep you together. So how can, how can I do that, says Mother Nature. And she says, oh, real easy. When you are coming together and you're finding your partner, your brain releases a, a chemical called dopamine. And dopamine is a pleasure chemical. So basically it says your pleasure is the most positive uh, uh, indication that you're going in the right direction. So when you start to feel pleasure with a person, there's a tendency, oh, wow, I want this. As a matter of fact, pleasure is so vital, a drive, that if you put an electrode in a rat's brain into the center where dopamine is released and put a switch on uh, in front of the rat, the rat will stay there and switch that switch on and off, click it on and off, on and off, on and off, all day, all night until the rat dies. It won't even go for food or water. Pleasure is so powerful that the rat will just push the button. Well, when we meet a potential mate and the vibes are right, there is a drawing together. If the relationship starts off and it's really pretty cool, then dopamine becomes part of the, uh, the the synthesis from the brain, which is all this pleasure. So it's like, oh, wow, I'm so in love. It's so pleasurable. It's so great. And then at the same time, another chemical called vasopressin is released, uh, and this vasopressin makes you more attractive, and attracts you to other people. So it's an attraction kind of uh, thing. So not only are you feeling pleasure, but you're totally attracted, magnetically attaching to this individual. And then uh, the uh, nature said, well, I, I want this to last for 13 years. <laughs> so she releases another chemical called oxytocin, which is the bonding chemical. And when that is released, the nervous system is drawn to the source of pleasure and tries to make a bond with it, just like a chemical bond, to hold on to that because this is where the pleasure is coming from. And if all this is going along well, of course, then you're creating a relationship that is going to sustain itself for at least 13 years, if not longer, of course, for any extra kids and then grandparenting, et cetera, and and so we have all this chemical drive. It's not even in consciousness. It's below all of this stuff. And then the last uh, chemical that really makes a big difference is serotonin. Uh, and serotonin is a chemical associated with uh, obsessive-compulsive behavior. And And think about it. Love. Is a prime example of obsessive compulsive behavior because when you fall in love with somebody, you obsessively think about them and need to be with them. And, you know, it's like connecting and staying in contact with them. Uh, oxytocin is driving this and, and, and encourages it because oxytocin uh, adds the, uh, causes the serotonin to come out. And that serotonin, in addition to providing obsessive compulsive behavior, and this is the hard part serotonin is is associated with addiction so Mm uh when you fall in love and all this pleasure is coming uh you're bonded to the source of this pleasure but you become addicted to this source of pleasure and that's to keep you together for this long period of time to be parents as a child is you know growing and able to sustain itself okay bruce take a breath (laughs) <laughs> Whew. I, had to, I had to get through that because that's all, that un, that's all unconscious. That's all that it, we're driven to this unconsciously, which okay. is, creates a problem sometimes when you can't find it. Okay.
0: <laughs> I want you to explain to me the relationship between the thought the Vibe and the Chemical Messengers, because uh. you, you described really some fascinating research in which somebody took a sonogram of a fetus while its parents were arguing, and the poor thing was very agitated and upset. And, yeah. and- Then you, you described other research where you say that the ability, the emotional and mental abilities of children are programmed by the repetitive patterns of emotional chemicals that they are bathed in within the mother's womb. So, so tell me, where does the role of the chemical messengers, uh, you know, leave off and what is the role of subconscious thought and programming?
1: Okay, well, the, uh, the first thing is this: uh, in the biology of belief, we talked about the concept of epigenetics, and epigenetics is the new science that reveals that genes are controlled by the environment, which makes a lot of sense because as the environment changes, uh, the organisms in that environment must adjust to this new environment, so the connection between environmental signals and gene behavior is this new science of epigenetics. Well, think about it this way. Uh, nature doesn't know when a sperm and egg are going to come together and make a new child. And why that's important is, well, today is kind of peaceful. Tomorrow could be uh, next world war. And the environment will profoundly change and life and its needs are going to be profoundly different. So... What nature says? Look, I can't pre-program the genetics of the child. I offer the genes as potentials, but I need some feedback from the environment at the time the child is developing, because this is the active time where environmental signals were, are going to adjust the fetus to match the. So the fetus matches the environment. Well, how how does the fetus know what the environment is? It doesn't. It's inside the mother. So by definition. The role of the mother is to interpret the environment through her perception and her mind, release the chemistry from her brain that coordinates her biology to fit that environment. And what's interesting is the, the chemistry from her brain goes into her blood. Well, the blood is used to nourish the fetus. And for all the longest time, we always said, uh, for uh, what's the role of the mother in development? Uh, we would just say, well, she provides nutrition from her blood and that genes... Control the development of the child. That was our old belief. So the role of the mother was just simply down to, uh, you know, eating well, taking vitamins and supplements, exercising, things that enhance their nutritional capability. And that's all we said was the role of the mother. But now with epigenetics, we realize that the mother is like nature's Head Start program. She reads the environment, interprets the safety or the hazards, and through organizing her biology to the world that she lives in, she releases hormones into her body to coordinate her to live in this environment. Well, the interesting thing is the hormones, which are connected to her interpretation of the environment, are in the blood, and they also cross into the fetus. Relevance is this. If the mother is happy, the fetus is happy. If the mother is afraid, the fetus is afraid. If the mother rejects the fetus because it throws a wrench in family planning the fetus is, is bathing in rejection chemicals. Wow. Uh, and why is this important? Because the answer is this. This baby, when it's born, is going to live in the environment that the mother is perceiving. So if she sees it as like a, a strife environment and life is hard, It changes the the hormones in her body, which then go in and change the hormones in the fetus and change the genetics of the fetus so that the fetus is biologically tuned to the environment that the mother perceives. And this is how nature says, good, I'm preparing your child to live in the world that you see, and and therefore uh, there's a translation of the mother's experiences into the child's genetics. And that's, uh, so it's very important because nature says, look, I, I adjust your child's genes according to what's going on, uh, and that's epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So there's pre-programming. Uh, it has been suggested up to 50% of our personality comes from this pre-programming in this regard.
0: A that's fetal, fascinating.
1: It is because, uh, you know, especially when, uh, when people adopt a child, they, especially a newborn, there's almost this impression, well, oh, blank slate. Uh, uh, you know, I, I will give this child the best and everything and it was going to have the greatest life. And s- many of these children grow up and they're, they're, they're just so much trouble. And it was sort of like the parents are so confused. It's like, well, we did everything we could to provide the best for them and look how they turned out. Uh, and what they didn't know and what we now know is this. That period of development in utero is also associated with learning. It learns because any pattern that the mother plays of behavior, Remember, think of the, the secretions of the neurohormones from the brain as, as making music, right? And as the woman is experiencing life and she creates all these secretions, uh, there's a wave of these, these chemicals going through her body, adjusting her biology to the world. Well, those, that wave of chemistry goes into the placenta. And the fetus is in a learning period in the last trimester. And in that learning period, it starts recording the flow of these emotional chemicals. You say, well, what does all that mean? I go, okay, think about it this way. Think about behavior as being a song with lyrics, music and lyrics. And then I'm going to say this, that the chemistry that comes across the placenta, when it comes across in a pattern that is repeated, that's like music. The fetus is learning the pattern of emotion through memorizing the flow of this chemistry. So by the time when the fetus is born, it has a pattern and habit uh, that it it downloaded the the behavior that the mother had and plays the lyrics. But then realize this, child isn't uh, communicating with the outside world. So while the child is learning the music of behavior, it doesn't have any lyrics to go with the song. However, once the child is born and starts playing the music of its behavior, it will naturally write the lyrics of its life to conform to that behavioral uh, paradigm or pattern that it learned. So this has led psychologists to suggest that 50% of our personality is pre-programmed before we are born. And this is why it's so difficult for, for people who adopt children. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they don't yeah. even know. This is already programmed. So you already are starting with a program. You didn't get here. But then, uh, then you have to say, well, wait, uh, I, I introduce introduced a child into the world, and I know it takes some period of development here, but the child has to learn. You know, if you've said, well, how many rules does a child have to learn to become a functioning member of a society? And all of a sudden you start to realize, oh, my God, it has, to, it has to be able to communicate with different people in different ways and understand the, the cultural, you know, the, 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 the paradigm traits of the culture. And it's like, well, how can you teach an infant, you know, thousands of pieces of data to be a member of society? And it's interesting because nature saw that and nature created the first seven years of a child's life the nervous system is predominantly in a low vibrational frequency called theta. Theta is imagination, uh, and this is why uh, children, especially before seven, mix the real and the imaginary world because their nervous system is operating at a theta vibration, which is a character of imagination. But theta is also hypnosis. And the significance is this. You don't have to teach or coach a child. The child is in a state of hypnosis for seven years. Everything that child observes is directly downloaded as programs into the subconscious mind.
0: Okay, so well, if it, way, is, yes. if it is, if it is, why isn't it able to overcome, particularly in the case of the adoption from, let's say, a, a you know, chaos-ridden area, why isn't it able to overcome in that nurturing environment the negative programming from its birth situation?
1: Uh, because basically the, the the first programs in are always the strongest programs. The first experience you have of anything is always more uh, powerful than any subsequent experience. And that's the issue of, uh, oh, we experienced it once and we want to keep going back and trying it. But it never really comes back to that first one. Uh, and also uh, because once the program is in... That program will stay in there until you specifically reprogram that behavior. Uh, And so if you don't know, uh, uh, let's say a child has been... Obviously, if you adopted the child, there was some issue uh, with the parenting of that child. You know, they didn't want the child, the parents died or whatever, you know, any kind of horrible things. Basically, these are issues that the child's already programmed with. If you try and teach it some other beautiful things, you can teach it all these other beautiful things, but if you don't go back and specifically change the program they receive, that program will stay there forever until someone rewrites it. So um, while you can learn all these other wonderful traits, uh, the original program of a child that came from that kind of condition would ultimately sabotage itself, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, not knowingly, consciously. Of course, this is all unconscious. This is the big issue. It's unconscious behavior which is controlling us, not the conscious behavior. So... uh, Okay well
0: that's a nice segue into what you described in a relationship as there being four minds.
1: Yes yes Miriam this is the key this is the you know this is this is the whole comes down to understanding four minds, as you said. We talk of the mind, the mind, uh, but there's really two fundamental subdivisions of the mind. Uh, One is called the conscious mind, and one is called the subconscious mind. The conscious mind is the latest uh, evolutionary addition to our brain. It's a lump of uh, neural tissue right behind your forehead. It's called the prefrontal cortex, and this is the seat of our personal identity, our uniqueness, our our connection to our spirituality. Uh, That's where we reside. So I say, Miriam, where are you in your brain? And the answer is you're sitting at some desk uh, in the prefrontal cortex. And and I say, well, this is the the latest edition of the brain. So 90% of the brain was there before that conscious part evolved. So 90% of the brain actually represents the subconscious. Now, so we have two minds, the conscious and the subconscious. They have different ways of learning and different functions. And if we understand this, then we have a key as to what is happening in our lives, because we have to recognize how the two minds learn and interact with each other and what each role is. So let's go back to the conscious mind. The conscious mind is the one that's really uh, specific to us because that's where we, as identities, exist. And the conscious mind is the creative mind, which is the evolutionary advancement uh, uh, above almost all the you know the lower organisms. That we have creativity, uh, and through that creativity, this is the, the human civilization has arisen. Through that, we have creative uh, conscious minds where you reside. Uh, the conscious mind's creative functions in regard to you. Uh, is the conscious mind represents uh, the seat of your wishes and your desires and your aspirations for life. And I say, Miriam, tell me what you want from your life. And in that creative moment where you give me, this is what I want, all the data is coming from the conscious mind. Uh, So the conscious mind is creative uh, and it has you in it. The subconscious mind is not very creative at all. It's almost like a, a video record system. It records life experiences, and when you push a button, it will replay those life experiences over and over again. Now, this is a very positive aspect of this because a lot of people think subconscious is negative, but look at it this way. You learned how to walk. How long did it take you to learn how to walk? You had to keep repeating and you know standing up and falling down and doing that over and over until you finally got it. Well, here's the beautiful part. Once you got it, it's because the subconscious mind has learned how to walk. You never have to think about that again in your whole life. You don't even have to say, I'm going to walk into the kitchen. You have a vision of that refrigerator, and then you find yourself there (laughs) because... All of it is subconscious. So subconscious is to take complex behaviors and make simple habits where you just push the button and not uh, have to go through a learning process. You just instantly play it. So it has really good, uh, you know, good things. Uh, um, walking, uh, you don't have to learn that every day, otherwise we'd never get anywhere. Uh, driving a car, once you learn how to drive a car, it's automatic. You don't have to pay attention. Uh, your job, your communication skills, uh, all the characters of our life that are repeated to some degree, are become, they become the, the habits in the subconscious mind. So the first seven years, uh, we are just recording other people's behaviors uh, and downloading them, and this is how we become a functional member of society, because we pattern ourselves after the other people, primarily your mother, father, family members, and uh, community.
0: Or so- dysfunctional, as the case may be.
1: Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> because basically when we get to, I want to get through, if I get through this, because the dysfunctional part is the part we have to wake up to. And it goes like this, is that basically it says, then the subconscious programs are programs of how to deal with life, habits, and behaviors. Uh, but fundamentally, these are not our programs, because the fundamental programs we downloaded by observing our mother, father, siblings, etc. And so now I say, okay, I have two parts to the mind. Conscious mind, me, wishes, desires, aspirations, subconscious mind, experiences, patterns, habits. And I say, okay, now both these minds are working together, uh, but they learn in different ways. The conscious mind is creative. Conscious mind is, hey, I just read a self-help book, and wow, it really is so great. I learned all this information. I just uh, saw a video, and that was great. I understood all the information. I went to a lecture and and wow, all that information went into my creative conscious mind, or even, aha, just an aha, and the conscious mind learned something. So the conscious mind's very creative, learns very quickly, uh, and then I say, well, what about the subconscious mind? I say, oh, that learns in a completely different way. And why this becomes relevant is that the subconscious mind learns in two fundamental ways. Hypnosis, which is the brain activity during the first seven years of a child's life, Uh, And then after that, just repetitive patterning, anything you do as a habit, Uh, you keep repeating the behavior, it will download that behavior. So why is this important? Well, you read the self-help book and you educated the conscious mind, now you know, oh my God, this is how I can make my life perfect, and then you find your life is still exactly the same. (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, I read all the books, I have all the information, but my life is still exactly the same. I went to a psychologist or psychiatrist. I reviewed all the people in my lives that, that affected me one way or another. Now I know why my life is this way, but guess what? It's still this way, meaning we so easily educate the conscious mind, and we had a misunderstanding that if the conscious mind got educated, it would change the program in the subconscious mind. And the fact is, no, it doesn't do that. Because the subconscious mind doesn't learn that way. You have to really, if you want to change the subconscious mind, you have to use the way it learns, not the way the conscious mm-hmm. mind learns. Okay, and then the last piece of data, and then, and then hopefully I'll get to this point that, Miriam, you started with. <laughs> uh, last piece of data is this. The conscious mind is not time-bound. Meaning, uh, Miriam, what are you doing next Wednesday? and uh, presumably your mind is now shifting off into next Wednesday, looking at a calendar, scheduling, whatever. Uh, I say, well, wait, wait, what did you do last Wednesday? And then the conscious mind now is shifting back in time, reviewing the last week and going, oh yeah, Wednesday I did this and this and this. Or I say, Miriam, uh, in your mind, I want you to think about this. Then your conscious mind sort of like goes upstairs into the room and it's, and, and it's studying whatever you were just thinking about. And I say, well, well, here's what's important. When your conscious mind is not pre- paying attention to the present moment because it's thinking about the future or reviewing the past or just contemplating stuff in your head, the default of the nervous system shifts the behavior to the subconscious programming. I go, well, why is that important? And I go... Well, the subconscious program is cool. You don't have to think about it. You can walk without paying attention to your feet so you can have thoughts as you're walking down the street. I go, well, this is, this is really cool, except for this. The fundamental programs in the subconscious mind were derived from observing other people. So their behavior becomes a subconscious programming. Well, the problem is your behavior is in the conscious mind, and the fundamental behaviors in the subconscious mind are are other people's behaviors, and they rarely have the same goal (laughs) so Mm -hmm. here's here's the point my conscious mind has wishes and desires i get up in the morning and i say i'm going out to find health happiness wealth great relationships whatever and i go out into the world and and then i come home with my tail between my legs going wow didn't really get very far on my quest today Uh, so the universe is not supporting me that's the general conception and it goes like this you went out with the conscious mind with a great intention and you didn't realize this fact that science is now uh, uh, really just boldly <laughs> uh, reveals to us is that because the conscious mind is not time bound and can think, we only operate from the conscious mind about 5% of the time. 95% of the time, we're defaulting to the subconscious programs. Yeah, but the subconscious programs don't have your wishes and desires, so when you're engaging them, there's no reason why they would take you anywhere toward where you want to go. They're, pre- they're programs from other people. So basically, 95% of the day, we're not running our lives with our wishes and desires. Uh, we're just playing programs. And we don't see these programs for a simple reason. Because why are they playing? Because the conscious mind's not paying attention. So when we play a subconscious program, we're generally totally unaware of our own behavior. So in my lectures, Miriam, I, I, I asked people, I say, look, I go back in your history. I know you were very close to a friend and you knew your friend's behavior very, very well. And you happen to know your friend's parent. And one day you start to realize that your friend has some of the exact same behavior as their parent. So you, you volunteer, you know, you go like, Hey, you know, Bill, you're just like your dad. And you back away from Bill. Bill goes (laughs) totally ballistic. (coughs) Excuse me. Bill starts to go, how can you compare me to my dad? And almost everybody in the audience laughs because they have personal experience. I say, well, there's two profound points to that one story. Profound point one everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his dad. The only one who doesn't see it is Bill. And the reason is this. He's playing that behavior because his conscious mind's busy, so he's playing the tape of whatever he's doing that he learned from his father, so he's playing his father's behavior. But because his conscious mind's busy, he himself doesn't see it. And that's why he's like, like, what do you mean (laughs) Uh, I'm like my father? (coughs) Excuse me. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the point about it is this. Profound point one, everyone else can see that Bill behaves like his father. It's only Bill who doesn't see it. And profound point two, we are all Bill. Every one of us, 95% of the day, is operating from subconscious programs. Yeah. And, and those programs are not necessarily installed by us or meet any of our wishes and desires. And when we play them, we don't see them. So now we put all this in a context. And we come back and I say, how did did you create a honeymoon? Well, the chemistry and the vibes led you to an individual. The behavior that you expressed when you started to couple with this person, and here's the exciting part, science has revealed that when people are making love, their conscious mind is present 90% or more of the time. As compared to regular everyday life, you're only conscious 5%. Why is this relevant? And the answer is simply this, is that what it means is that when you are operating from the conscious mind, remember what is the what is the function of the conscious mind? Wishes, desires, aspirations. When two people first fall in love, they're only operating from their conscious minds. So all of their behavior is controlled by wishes and desires and uh, and what they want. So guess what? Two people during this phase create and manifest heaven on earth because they're creating what they want, experiencing their wishes and desires. This is the greatest thing in the world. It's the juicy honeymoon period. And this goes on for a period of time. And then here's where the problem comes from, because almost everybody drops out of that honeymoon type of experience. doesn't mean they fall out of love. It just means that the juiciness, the excitement, the heaven-on-earth experience sort of fades, and then we're into regular life after that. So um, how come the honeymoon goes away? And the answer is this. The honeymoon is created because two conscious minds are interacting with each other and operating from wishes, desires, and aspirations. But when life gets busy, the conscious mind all of a sudden starts thinking. And it's not being here as much anymore. As the conscious mind is thinking into the future or the past or reviewing what has to be done, the default shifts behavior to the subconscious programming, but that's other people's behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so this is what Eckhart yeah. Tolle is talking about, the power of now, or the Buddhists talk about presence. It's being fully present in the moment
1: absolutely because when you are then every decision you make is based on wishes and desires mm-hmm. but unlike that couple we were just talking about when one of the couple uh whose minds gets busy about thinking about life and they start to play uh programs from the subconscious mind mm-hmm. well the subconscious now we're adding two more minds to the relationship the the first two minds are the conscious minds and the two subsequent minds are the subconscious minds but the difference is this the two conscious minds are involved with creating heaven on earth and the two subconscious minds are just playing programs that they got from other people and most of these programs are negative and and disempowering and self-sabotaging That's just the way it is psychologists have revealed that and why is that relevant let's just put ourselves into one situation to see when the the day the honeymoon began to end and it goes like this two people are together all their interactions are loving and, and, and creating harmony and joy and peace and all this stuff that you know emphasizes the honeymoon effect and and then let's say my partner comes up to me and at this particular moment I'm thinking about like oh I got to fix a car or pay the rent and my mind's thinking about something and my partner Margaret comes up and asks me a very simple easy question and I turn around and go blah 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 and she looks at me and this is a sentence that most people have heard at some point she looks at me and says who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> uh, where did this behavior come from? This, this behavior has never been part of our relationship, okay? So uh, this new behavior shows up. It's not really very good at all. And, and then here's the problem. She looks at me and says, what kind of behavior is that? Now put me back into Bill's situation. She just said my behavior wasn't really very good. My conscious mind is going, what is she talking about? I'm a good person. My behavior, of course, is always good. Well, what did I didn't see? Just like Bill. When my mind was busy, I engaged my father's behavior that I downloaded from him. Now, that behavior isn't really good. But did I even see I did it? Well, just like Mm -hmm. Bill, no, I didn't see it. Uh, What are you talking about?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, This this book is full of really very helpful and personal anecdotes. One of the things that Margaret said in her bit really hit home with me. She said that when she's arguing with you, she would stop herself and go into the bathroom, look at herself in the mirror and say, Margaret, do you want to be right or do you want to
1: be in love? Good one. That's a great one. That, that, that helped our marriage a lot. (laughs) Uh, And, and again, and again, what you talked about, like Eckhart Tolle, it says being in the now. When you get and look in that mirror and you start to talking to yourself, you're talking, you're, you're, because you're not getting the answer, you're asking the question. Um, that's your consciousness talking through your conscious mind, the creative mind with wishes and desires. When she gave herself a choice, do, do you want to go back in there and be right and fight this thing out and prove you're right or? wouldn't you just rather be in love? When she chooses love, this is a mindful decision. She's making a conscious choice to create a behavior that encourages the relationship. So uh, basically, it was a great, uh, it's like an interrupt pattern where mm-hmm. if she didn't go into that bathroom, we stayed there and continued arguing until somebody was right. Uh, that, that, that would have burned a hole in the relationship big time. When she said, look, I don't need to win the argument. I don't care. I'd just rather stay in love than let go of the whole thing because it was, the argument wasn't important. <laughs> and the love prevails. The argument disappears. It's a matter of choice. It's a matter of mindfulness. And that's exactly the kind of mindfulness that keeps the honeymoon going. Uh, and yet it's very difficult for people to stay mindful for this simple reason. That means you can't let your conscious mind wander a lot. But every day it wanders 95% of the time. So right away you can see this is a difficult issue. Uh, And and there's practices and exercises to try and maintain mindfulness. But again, it's very difficult in a very busy world that we live uh, in. And so basically, uh, what can we do about it? Uh, And the idea is, geez, every time those subconscious programs show up and they introduce behavior, uh, think about it this way. If you played some of those subconscious programs on your first date, you probably wouldn't have even had a second date after yeah. that. Uh, you give but,
0: some really good tips on how to keep the honeymoon effect going. Give us a few you, of them.
1: Well, uh, it's basically the, the most important thing is this. is A, you have to recognize you have a subconscious program, and uh-huh. your partner has to recognize it. Because if you don't recognize it, that's when the arguments come from, such as the argument uh, based on, Who are you after some behavior shows up? That would lead to an argument. If both people are aware that they have subconscious programs that play behaviors that are not really their wishes and desires, then guess what? That is the first and most important step toward reprogramming because... When the bad or negative program shows up, and both people are aware that uh, neither of them intended to be there with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, if, I, if I play my father's behavior, let's say, and Margaret sees it in, in a conventional relationship, she would start to get argue with me and get mad at me for whatever behavior I just played. But when we're both aware that these behaviors come from the subconscious mind, then all of a sudden, instead of an argument, it's sort of now it's a, it's a simple discussion. You know, by the way, Bruce, you, you, you know the kind of thing you just said or whatever you just did it was more like your father. It was that your intention? Yeah.
0: But I like the other thing she, you say is that just shut up and touch each other.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know that Margaret is really good at that uh, because we we realize this is that when an argument comes, uh, it's basically because two people are trying to protect each other. Or from from each other, protect themselves. What what is protection? Protection means putting a wall up. That's protection means walling off whatever is threatening from the outside. So the moment two people <clears throat> get into what you call a protection posture, they're disconnected and they put a wall up to protect who they are against any accusations of them not being who they are, or whatever. And and that disconnect, the longer you stay disconnected the more threatening it is to the, to, to the relationship. Mm-hmm. So one of the most important aspects of uh, following an argument of some kind is not to sit there and talk about the argument. That probably won't work very well. <laughs> but to sit there and just be touching in some form. So Margaret yeah, say like, yeah. uh, we could just put our knees together or mm-hmm. hold each other's hand. Don't have to talk about it because the talking about it may, may actually make things worse if at that moment. It's yeah. just well, to let it can- calm down
0: we're we're only scraping the the tip of the iceberg with with the richness of this book and um what i particularly like are the implications for how we interrelate with the rest of the world how we can take this up a level uh, as below so above so i very warmly recommend uh bruce lipton's the honeymoon effect the science of creating heaven on earth Bruce, I wish we had more time. We're going to have to have you back. So thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Mm-hmm. Miriam, thank you for, for letting me have that time and, and for rambling, I know, because uh, I want to tell everybody everything. I, so, you know, it's like <laughs> if, we all, if we could all get it right now, then tomorrow heaven on earth is not just between two people, but heaven on earth becomes a prevailing way of life for all people because when people are around others who are in love, The radiation of that vibration and that energy impacts them as well. And so, as more people fall in love, passerby start to experience and feel that themselves. And so, uh, it's sort of like a, a cascading reaction, a chain reaction. As more people fall in love, others are pulled into that. And if that spreads, uh, it's just magnificent because if you create heaven on earth for yourself when you're in love, what happens if everybody starts creating heaven on earth? Then the simple truth is it is heaven on earth, and that's our destination.
0: Absolutely. And if you've never heard Bruce speak in person, it's an experience you want to have. So go to his website, brucelipton.com, and find out where he's going to be speaking Um, Bruce, again, thank you so much.
1: Miriam, thank you. I so appreciate the opportunity, and I really want to thank all the listeners out there because um, all of us are involved in an evolution, and I, I wish us all the best on heaven on earth.
0: Next week, our guest is going to be Dr. Eric Pearl discussing his book, Solomon Speaks. And now I'm going to leave you with just a little taste of the track of the week called I Am from Doug Fulton's album, Oneness Dancing. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.